The views and opinions expressed on coffee and compatibility are those of the podcast host and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of Ashi. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Coffee and Compatibility. I am Eric Weimer, and with me is Dr. Kelly Hitchman, as always. And we are very excited to announce our new co-host, Jeremy Sherrill. Jeremy, we are so excited to introduce you to the public. So excited. (laughs) Some of you may know Jeremy and some of you may not. So Jeremy, will you tell the listening audience a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. Thanks so much, Eric and Kelly, for having me. I'm uh, excited to be part of the the podcast team here. Um, I've been in HLA for uh, about nine years now. I'm coming up on my ninth anniversary. I'm sure you saw that uh, that in the news recently. Um, uh, I, like many people, kind of stumbled upon a career in HLA. Uh, I intended to be a shortstop for the Detroit Tigers, and I'm not giving up on that dream yet. But, uh, but in the meantime, I'm really excited um, about uh, the, the field of HLA and excited to be a part of this podcast and, and uh, hopefully uh, get some really good information out to the listeners. The moment you become a professional baseball player, I call dibs. I call dibs. <laughs> I need like some sort of agent contract. We can like work out a deal. Like I'm totally on board with this. If you can get me there, you've got it. So I just want to say that we had some great applicants for the uh, technologist co-host role. And I want to thank everyone who applied uh, and put forth effort in that area. Um, And thank you so much, Jeremy, uh, for taking this on. We're so excited to have you. You're going to bring a lot to the podcast. We are super excited uh, to see where you take us and your perspective is so important. So, so excited to introduce you to the public. Well, thanks so much. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, So we have some interesting announcements. We have learned that there has been a change to the annual meeting pre-meeting. So if you've ever been to an ASHI meeting, you've probably seen that there's an option to register uh, for a portion of the meeting that happens the day before the annual meeting actually kicks off or maybe the day of um, the annual meeting. The annual meeting usually begins in the evening and there's a big like pre-meeting symposia before. So there is actually not going to be a pre-meeting this year at the ASHI annual meeting. Instead, there will be a featured topic that will be held from 12 p.m. to 5 p.m. on Monday, October 16th. That means no extra fee to attend the pre-meeting. You can attend this featured topic as part of your meeting registration. Everyone who registers for the full ASHI annual meeting can attend the featured topic at no additional fee. Wicka, wicka. Kelly, do you think there's any chance we can do like an Ashi opening ceremony this year where maybe Eric comes in carrying like the Ashi torch while you sing like an inspirational song? Any chance we can make that happen? I think the first part of it is possible because all things are possible through Eric Weimer. Um, the second part is probably not going to be possible. Uh, I think I'm I think I'm busy. Um, that day uh, or for something. 
for some reason. Well, we can uh, put out a call for We'll think on that. We'll, we'll think on that. Absolutely. Um, and we've also been asked um, how folks can uh, get a hold of old podcast episodes. Um, so now that Jeremy's with us and people are going to start listening, um, they're going to want to know like what the podcast sounded like before uh, Jeremy joined us, I'm sure. Um, so I want to let you know, you can visit the Ashi website. Uh, you can click on education and then scroll down and click on coffee and compatibility. You will find their links to several listening platforms. We are on many listening platforms where full episodes and descriptions are listed. Uh, for more information, contact info at ashi-hla.org. We will be right back after the short message with Dr. Abir Maduli uh, for discussion on the shifts in typing frequencies and a very spicy topic. We are just three months away from welcoming you to the Ashi Educational Workshop One in Denver, Colorado. This professional development opportunity is the perfect setting for those who are new to HLA or want to expand their knowledge in the HLA field. There is something for every type of lab and the topics that are covered apply to your daily work. Attend in person to get the full benefits and camaraderie of this workshop. You'll also have the opportunity to network, build relationships, and knowledge share in a more intimate setting. The in-person workshop will be held June 29th through July 1st, or join the virtual workshop on July 21st and July 28th. Registration is open now. Visit ashieducationalworkshops.com. Everybody, I am so excited to introduce our guest. It's going to get spicy on the program today because we have with us Abir Madbouli, who is a principal bioinformatics scientist at the National Marrow Donor Program in Minneapolis in the United States. She has over 15 years experience in bioinformatics. Her role involves improving the donor-patient tissue matching process by developing better validation methods, more innovative matching, better collection of donor and recipient race, ethnicity, and ancestry information, and diversified population genetics analysis. Dr. Madbouli earned a Doctor of Philosophy in Electrical and Computer Engineering from the University of Miami in Florida, and she currently serves as the past chair of the Ashi Science and Technology Initiatives Committee. Please welcome Dr. Beer Mad Bully. May we call you a beer? Of course. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy, busy schedule to bring us information on this extremely important, timely, and controversial topic. And that topic is how sequencing is changing the way that we look at HLA typing and the way we associate typing with heritability. Very, very spicy topic indeed. So we've, we've been using HLA typing data and ancestry, ethnicity, race, hand in hand for a long, long time. Um, a, a lot in imputation, right? One, one trying to inform the other in one direction or another. So can I ask the first question, which gets people real riled up, what is the difference between race, ethnicity, and ancestry, and which should we be using when we talk about HLA typing? 
Oh, Kelly, this is you. You start by a very important question, and I, I, usually I start some of my presentations with the delineation of of the three, and which one that really matters when it comes to HLA. Um, race is, is when we talk about race, it's it's mostly around um, uh, you know people's skin color, their populations that they're grouped together, and it, there's also some association with the geographical location, ethnicity, uh, and before I move to ethnicity, race is also, there is a big social construct um, that is associated with race. And um, oddly enough, some people may identify differently as time goes by. And, and it's also affected by, you know, the, what, the migration status, the level of education, the language is spoken and so on. Ethnicity is more related to culture. So when we say Hispanic ethnicity, for example, this is uh, linked to Spanish-speaking population. So, uh, for example, um, I like to use the term Latino if we if we're including individuals from populations in Latin America, because you have individuals that speak Portuguese, not Spanish, like Brazilians who don't identify as Hispanic. So the ethnicity is more tied into cultural aspect. Ancestry is is more tied to the genetics. And this is really what relates the most with HLA, particularly geographical ancestry, because HLA has been shaped over generations, depending on um, what different populations have gone through from, you know, natural disasters to different aspects of, um, of natural selection, forced migrations, wars, pandemics, you name it. So, um, ancestry or HLA is more shaped by geographical ancestry. And this is what really matters when, when we're talking about HLA and particularly imputation. Now, thank you for that, Abir, because despite having used those terms uh, countless times in presentations, I seemingly never remember the exact definition. So that was very, very well said. Um, something that comes to mind is how important do you see ancestry, now I hope I'm using that right, on HLA typing going forward? As, as from where we are today uh, in the field of HLA typing to how important do you see ancestry being? I, I get that question a lot, Eric. Uh because people think that because we're doing high resolution typing, for example, with the stem cell registry, and I know the solid organ field is also moving in this direction that we, we potentially won't need um, imputation and won't need the ancestry information for, for HLA anymore. And my answer to that is always, we will always need this information. Um, and I will tell you why. First of all, uh, working for the stem cell registry, we have still more than half of our donors typed with some sort of ambiguity because I mean the the national marrow donor program has been exist in existence for over 35 years and uh, the typing um, technologies have evolved over the years so we still have um donors that have suboptimal typings we still have donors with significant gaps in there so we don't have a lot of donors with dpa1 for example or you know dqa1s dpb1 only one third of the registry is is typed at tbb1 for example so so we still need this data quite a bit for matching at least in in the stem cell 
um, field. Now, the other issue, so that's in terms of imputation. The other um, um, domain where we really need this data is reporting to the government. So, so we have the contractual agreement with with HERSA where we report regularly the match um, rates for uh, the match projections for multiple populations in in the U.S. And this is where we identify, you know, populations that that need more recruitment, where that are underserved, and then we plan our strategy accordingly. So, because we're always data-driven. So even outside the, the realm of, of matching in terms of modeling and in terms of projection and planning, we always need this to collect this data. So I have a selfish slash not 100% selfish question. Uh, I have a very particular population where I am. I My laboratory is in South Central Texas. And the data that we get from our folks when we're kind of looking at HLA typing is self-report. Right. And that's very important. It's a point of pride for people where they are from and their reported ethnicity, race, and ancestry. So in my area, people will prefer to say that they are Mexican rather than Hispanic in a lot of cases, uh, because Hispanic is inclusive of several um, Latin groups, and some people want to be identified as Mexican. So I'm just kind of giving an example. How does the fact that a lot of the data that we collect, it's self-report, what people identify with, change our ability to use this data in a, in a certain way? Or, or does it, does it cause us to have some assumptions that, that might not be true? How do you feel like that self-report aspect of this data changes the way we can look at this data and use this data? So I love this question. Uh, because also it's it's one of the topics that I that that I always discuss. Um, so self-reporting um, of race and ethnicity is is obviously um, not immune from from errors, right? There is an error factor, particularly that that like I mentioned, some folks actually change how they identify over over time, depending on a lot of factors. Um, However, we've identified early on that that this is an issue, but there's also um, a factor of we cannot um, do, for example, genome-wide um, uh, uh, SNP typing or ancestry typing for for all our, you know, eight million donors on on the U.S. registry. For example, we simply don't have the funds to do that. Neither would it solve all the problems. And I'm, and I'll get to, um, to to that point later, where everyone is asking me, "Can't we just do 23andMe on everyone?" Oh, yes, we can if we have the funds, but that still won't solve some of our problems. And I'll tell you why. But going back to your issue that you know we've realized that self-reporting is uh, of race and ethnicity is really our segue to the genetic information that we need to better serve our patients in terms of of matching and reporting like i mentioned so what we've done over the years we is we try to um improve the way we collect this information as well as uh, do some analyses around the HLA data so we can group people in an efficient way in populations that will be most represented representative of the HLA variation. Um, so we've our the way of we collect this information in the stem cell field has evolved in the last 20, 25 years from just going with, you know, the five broad sensor census groups, you know, European, Caucasian, and 
the term Caucasian is also not the accurate one, but just people of European ancestry, you know, Black or African American, Hispanic, um, Native American, and Asian Pacific Islanders. So those are the five main groups. We've evolved from that to collecting some of the details. And then we went by uh, for, for a few, for like almost two decades with the uh, mandate from the Office of Management and Budget where Hispanic was uh, termed as ethnicity. And unfortunately, then we had to remove all of the uh, Hispanic uh, details, like you mentioned, um, it, which kind of uh, took a hit on our data. But then we realized that mistake later. And since July of 2020, we changed the way we put the details back. And we've added more details. Because like you mentioned, you know what? People's favorite topic is to talk about themselves. And there is a, a lot of pride when people, you know, mention where they come in and they they talk about the roots. And we want them to talk about their the roots because we want this information for for our operations, right? So so it it, it was in a way a way of of engaging our donors uh, our donors better. We get feedback now when when a donor finds that there is an Ashkenazi box on on our form or there is you know um a, a farsi or an iranian box or there's a central asian people are so happy that they could find the box to identify with there is a puerto rican there is you know a, 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 an indian a pakistani you know so so we're collecting all of this information now to improve the way we match the donors and the patients from these ethnicities. And so this has already been done on the donor side, and we're taking strides now to change that on the patient side as well. But you're absolutely right. Amir, how do you think labs can best utilize this information, knowing that um, knowing that these definitions affect the, the, the rare allele poles, mm -hmm. knowing that it affects uh, linkage disequilibrium patterns, how do you think labs can best utilize that information? Oh, great question again. Uh, it, there are so many ways that the labs can apply this. So, uh, so for example, I know that uh, particularly in the solid organ um, field, there is, um, when you get lower resolution data, labs quite a bit use um, our uh, haplostats application to apply imputation. You want to know, and uh, I'm going to give a shout out to the ASHI annual meeting because we have a dedicated uh, session that Eric and I are, are organizing. And there's another one with Nick Brown where we're going to talk about imputation, how, how to properly use it. So when you're using imputation, you want to make sure that you're capturing the race data, the race and ethnicity data, and entering that when you're doing imputation, right? Because if you don't get the result that, is, that corresponds to the, the group of, of donors or patients you're, you're imputing for, then you're getting the, the, the not accurate result. Per se. So this is kind of the, the, the direct application for labs. When you're using Applestats, you want to make sure that you enter all the, you capture this data correctly. You want to make sure that, especially for patients, that it is as accurate as possible for patients. It's not, you know, um, the transplant center coordinator who are entering it. If you try to get the accurate information and you try to use it for imputation. This is one. If if you're using um, other forms of, of data like the CIWD tables, or you want to make sure again that it is corresponding to the right race group because the way this is this is done is imputation uses these haplotype frequencies that change for every population. So these haplotype frequencies are used to generate your the predictions and the the frequencies will differ depending on for each haplotype depending on the population you're you're entering. So 
if um, if you're you're imputing for uh, an Indian patient, it's different from when you're imputing for um, an Ashkenazi patient or uh, or a, a South, you know, uh, European Asian for a patient, for example. So you want to make sure you're, you're using this accurately. The CIWD catalog, the the newest catalog, gives you the Commonwealth and and um, the Commonwealth documented alleles per population. So you don't go to the general. Um, uh, entry in the table, you go to the population specific because what's common or well-documented in one population might not be in another. And that will really impact how, you know, your, your uh, matching, how you're calling your, you know, your virtual cross-match result. This is going to impact a, a lot of the operations that you're doing to serve these transplants. Does that no, address your question? Yeah, I, think, I thought that was a great answer, um, Abir. Uh, one of the things I want to follow up on is what something you touched on in that you talked a lot about how having race and ethnicity is important to sort of increase the granularity for, you know, sort of the less common uh, race and ethnicity groups that you talked about and how having it can be helpful, particularly because if I understand how you're approaching imputation, you're mostly doing a statistical method mm -hmm. using the frequency of a particular haplotype within a given race or ethnicity, correct? Correct. So, so what if you took an approach? Isn't some of the race and ethnicity information encoded into the genetics itself? You mean the HLA? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but I'll tell you for um, so, Eric. Um, that's a tricky question, but I I think I know what you mean. Um, we. It is encoded in the HLA. Um, however, we need the haplotype frequency still, and I will tell you why. Because um, if you look at the composition of, of the registry that, you know, at the National Mayor Donor Program, for example, two-thirds of our donors are of uh, European ancestry. And the remaining third is from basically all other areas of the world. So we, we have um, groups like the Alaskan Natives, like uh, South Central American Black, like Caribbean Hispanic, who we don't have uh, a, a huge sample size of donors on the registry. However, we try as much as possible to um, formulate haplotype frequencies from these samples to be representative of, of these populations. The larger the sample, the better the frequencies will be and the more representative of the, of the population it will be. So yes, you have the, the, the genetic marker in the actual HLA, but you still need the haplotype frequencies because let's say you have um, a relatively rare uh, HLA type like the one I have. I don't have a match on the registry. I'm Egyptian by ancestry, right? And I have, you know, the malaria protective alleles B51 and B53. You don't find those a lot, you know, but, and there isn't a lot of Egyptians on the registry, but when you're imputing, you don't want to go for like the European imputation for it. You want to go for the ones, the Northern African, for example, or, you know, this, the, the other populations that have these alleles that, and you'll probably not going to get a very high um, frequency of, of my genotype anywhere. You see where I'm going. It's, you want to have the population representation as much as popular possible, particularly for these underrepresented types, because you oh. don't want to be the other thing that when, when, whenever we're talking about imputation, obviously a lot of people just go with the, the, the top most prediction, which is not accurate all the time. You want to look at the entire distribution 
and I know that issue was raised in uh, Ashi meeting last year, and we're going to talk about it again this year. You want to talk. You want to look at the distribution, and then make the best call for the patient at hand. No, I, I mean I completely see the advantage to to having it. I think one of the reasons why you hear us talking about it and why we wanted to have this conversation with you is I think there's a hard, we're in a hard position where there's sort of institutions like the National Marrow Donor Program, um, where you're at, where there's multiple reasons why having ethnicity and race information is beneficial, right? You touched on a number of them, uh, in, in particular, helping with disparity. And to me, one of the things that could potentially address not only that issue, but some of the, the self-reported issues that, that Kelly mentioned is like, is there a need for establishing like a massive cohort of HLA typing data that is as inclusive as possible, right? I mean, given the limitations, I know that that would face. But, you know, I'm a dreamer. So why it seems to me it would be most beneficial if we could get a huge database, whether it's NMDP, World Marrow Donor, you get where I'm going. That has, as you said, some of the ethnicity information encoded into it. It gets you a greater population diversity, right? So it starts to address some of the like finer granularity that you're talking about. What are your thoughts on that? And is there a way to start to bridge? What's the what's step one in towards that dream? Well, we've already taken step one, Eric, on that, which is making our frequencies publicly available for research, right? Because we arguably hold the most diverse HLA data set in the world, you know. Um, obviously, there's the WMDA repository, but that holds, you know, I think they just made it to 40 million donors um, a few weeks ago. So, um, but not everyone has has access to that. We need, we, we make our frequencies publicly available so people can definitely benefit from that diversity and get more knowledge of HLA in different populations. It's exactly what, what you said. And uh, and, it, and there is multiple applications for that. They're not just in, in stem cell, but obviously in, in solid organ, particularly the work that uh, my colleague in Tulane, you know, Dr. Lauren Gregert is doing with the CPRA calculations. I think he's he's doing great work in improving the, the predictions there because for the longest time, the data set that, that was used by UNOS, I think, only had um, just a few hundred um, samples in for, for some diverse populations. And then that wasn't really enough to make these predictions accurate, which was unfortunately widening the disparity gap. Um, and, and that's why the, the work that Lauren is doing is, is extremely important to kind of bridge that gap and, and have better predictions and better CPRA calculations for, for these patients of color so they can have better um, allocation um, for for you know for for their cure. But having this data available, and and we're constantly working on that. We have the most recent frequencies already been published early this year, and the, and the manuscript is out, and the and the metric projections, the frequencies are also available with with this publication. Um, so we're constantly striving to, to towards the towards this goal. But it, there are other groups that are also trying to focus on um, on other 
minority groups like Caribbean groups, for example, or Latino groups are because we know that these populations inadvertently are, are underrepresented in multiple databases. It's let's face it, whenever you're doing healthcare research, most of, of the samples are white. We know that. Um there's because of many reasons. You know, there's like a trust, there is, you know, the, the gaps in 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 the medical record uh data, there is issues with how we collect this data for patients. We could go on and on for, but we, we are always trying to get more. Uh, diverse data for for research, for better matching, for better operations, you name it. So it's it's a complex problem. But whenever we have the data, we try to make it publicly available. Thank you so much for being with us today, Abir. There was so much to unpack in this. And I think the takeaway from today that I'm most excited about is that there's going to be so much more on this at the annual meeting in San Antonio this year in 2023. Uh, so if you guys heard this and you were as excited as I am to hear more about this, it sounds like a true call to best practices in imputation and use in this data come to the 2023 ASHI annual meeting in San Antonio. You're going to hear a lot more. Thanks, Abir. Thank you. The ASHI 49th annual meeting is pleased to introduce Dr. Donna Farber as our keynote speaker, who will be discussing human tissue immunity across the lifespan. This year's meeting is in San Antonio, Texas on October 16th through 20th at the newly renovated Marriott River Center. The abstract submission site is open until April 21st. Travel awards are also open for ASHI members who haven't yet received one. Apply by June 1st. The separate pre-meeting registration fee is no longer. The revamped pre-meeting is now known as the annual meeting's featured topic. This year's featured topic is cellular therapies, regulatory funding agencies, and clinical laboratories. Visit 2023.ashi-hla.org for more information. Welcome back, guys. Now it is time for the tea, a segment dedicated to answering questions from our listeners. This comes to us from an anonymous listener, very mysterious. The question is, what are the requirements to take the CHS, the ASHI Certified Histocompatibility Specialist exam? Are there any useful tools available for those currently working in a busy lab? And I think the best person to answer that question would be the expert, uh, Jeremy, who has his CHS. What do you think, Jeremy? So as far as requirements go, um, those are pretty simple. You need a, a bachelor's degree, um, the same sort of bachelor's degree you would need just to, just to be qualified to work in a histocompatibility lab. And then you need five years of, of relevant full-time experience, and you would need some, some letters of support from uh, from your director to, to document that, in fact, you have the necessary experience. Uh, as far as tools go, uh, studying tools, there, there's a, a published content uh, outline uh, on the ASHI website. I would direct people there. Um, and there are some new resources coming out um, for those studying for the exam very soon. So look out for those on uh, the ASHI social media pages, as well as the, the ASHI website. Um, there are also, I think, some wonderful resources for everyone in their own labs. Um, I would look to your uh, look to your director, look to the, the senior people in your labs, and ask them for help. When you see material on that count, content outline that you're not familiar with, go to them and, and get some uh, get some of their feedback on how those 
uh, how those uh, tests operated or how they uh, mastered uh, that subject. I would, I would say don't study in a corner. Don't feel like you need to study on your own. Uh, utilize the people in your lab that have, have been there and done that before. Yeah, I think that's great advice. So folks, everything that Jeremy is talking about is really nicely written out uh, in pretty good detail uh, on the ASHI website at ashi-hla.org. Look under certification and click on the uh, ASHI exam handbook. And you can find all of that info in there. And I, I agree, ASHI University is just a great resource. If you need career advice or advice on how to deal with something happening in your lab, visit our podcast page at ashi-hla.org backslash page backslash ashi podcast, or email us at info at ashi-hla.org and write the T in the subject line. <laughs>